If you are new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. It is so good to have you. Uh, it takes courage to show up to a church for the first time. And so good job. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. You're going to find um, that this is a, a, an, an intolerably friendly place. Uh, sometimes people go to church to hide and, uh, and that's good. That's fine. I was talking with some new visitors and I said, you're not allowed to serve. You have to rest. And sometimes we need to hear that. Um, so I know that if you are brand new, that uh, it can be a bit intimidating. And so what we do, because we're a smaller church and we want to, to have this community be a people where we can actually get to know each other, uh, in the seat back in front of you, there's a little blue and white welcome card. And if you want to, you can put your name on that. You can uh, give me your contact info. You can throw it in the offering plate. Um, we only sell your information when our, on our giving goes low and... Don't worry, it's already on the dark web anyways, and uh, no, we, we keep your information confidential, but I would love to have a chance to, uh, to call you, to take you out to lunch or coffee, and Pastor Paul uh, and Casey um, and others are not here this morning because they're leading 20 of our people on an alpha retreat this weekend, and uh, so it's really exciting that um, so many people are having an incredible encounter with the Holy Spirit. I was talking with one one lady, um, she and her husband just found Alpha online and started coming, and the miracles that God is doing in her heart right now are just spectacular. And we're having this experience together where as we call out to Jesus, he is in, he shows up. He's our firm foundation. He's our life. I just love that last song that we, that we sang. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. We want to do one thing first, and that is we, at our church, we have this thing called change for a dollar. We see how much change we can make in someone's life by putting in a dollar or so in the bucket, and I know that a lot of you put in a, a different amount, and I'm so grateful for that, and um, so we're going to pass out these gorgeous handmade buckets <laughs> from a company that's no longer in business. And so we need someone uh, who has not given the bucket before to raise their hand, and we need that person's name to be John Holquin. Is that, is that right? Oh, John, thank you. So there are no rules to who gets the bucket, um, except that if you do call me earlier in the week and say, I really, really want to have the bucket because I want to give it away to someone, uh, then, then I'll say yes. And so many of you have done that. And uh, it's so much fun. So John will be here next week to share about what it was like, who he gave it to, how much money there was, how many random bits of things were in there. But most importantly, how, how did a God use John and you guys to be an answer to someone's prayer? The change for a bucket thing is, is our shameless attempt to help you understand that you can make a difference right here, right now, right where you are. You don't need to have a seminary degree. You don't need to have your life all put together. All you need to do is open your eyes to the people that are in your life, in your community, in your neighborhood, and say, how is it that we as a church can be an answer to these people's prayers? And you have that calling right now. So that's what we do is change for a dollar. So well, while change for a dollar bucket is passing around, um, John, I think we have a couple more announcement slides. Number one, oh wait, go back. Number one, um, Back one slide, John. There it is. Um, 
every single dollar that you put in the change for a dollar bucket, so let's say we raise $400 this morning, as the elder board will match that $400 and we will take that $400, send it to Life Water, and they will create clean drinking water, amazing sanitation and hygiene, and bring the hope of the gospel to communities across this world who do not have it yet. And so we're not just making a difference here, we're also making a difference internationally. And this year we anticipate giving over $6,000 to Life Water because that's what you gave last year in the change for a dollar bucket. Isn't that incredible? I love it. Okay, next slide. Um, we're going to be putting together a small Easter choir. Uh, rehearsals are on Thursday night. If Casey was here, you'd see her. Otherwise, show up this Thursday at 6.30 p.m. here in the sanctuary. No experience required. Uh, you don't need a good voice. Um, I mean, what could be more easy than this, you know? Sound terrible, sing in the choir. All right. Um, next week is the fifth Sunday. There's, so there's five times a year where there's a fifth Sunday of the month. On those Sundays, we collect money for the deacon fund. Every single dime that you put in that little white envelope in the seat back in front of you and give to the deacons goes to help significant needs within our community of faith. They're not given outside. That money goes specifically to people in, sitting here in this room who desperately need financial assistance. We've kept people from losing their homes. We've paid for medical bills. We've provided essential car repairs for single moms. We've done a million and five amazing things with the money in the Deacon Fund. You will never know how much difference that makes. So if you have... Um, uh, an extra pocket in your pants for people in need, bring it next week, um, and that's where the deacon fund is. Also, if you would like to learn more, next Sunday, um, we're going to have a lunch right after church about what is a DNA group, uh, where we discover who Jesus is, we nurture faith within ourselves, uh, and then we act upon the truth that we have. And then every single DNA group is a group of three or four people, uh, men with men, women with women, where we experience transformation. Um, so if you're hungering for an experience where you're going to grow quickly in your faith, this is the time. So we want to invite you to lunch, demystify the whole process, and allow you a chance to, to, to eat. Um, we have a high school youth group going on. More information online in the bulletin. Also, we have junior high youth group going on. Junior high is Mondays. High school is, is Fridays. Did you know that we had 19 junior hires and senior hires in, in church last week? And I know that that's... I know you're clapping. It's like, oh my gosh, well, that's an abject failure. No, 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 no. No, that's a 19,000% increase uh, over the years. So we're just, we're so grateful. And, and thank you to all my senior hires sitting in the, in the almond gallery over here. You're the peanut gallery and you're the almond gallery. And so we love you. Uh, also, more things coming up. I'm just going to stop doing the announcements since it's too many already. Um, more info in your bulletin and online. There it is. Okay, now, can we pray for this morning's offering? That'd be okay? Jesus, you're the giver of all good gifts. You renew us and restore us by your generosity. You exchange our poverty with your riches. And so once again, Lord, in this time of worship, we come to celebrate everything that you've done this last week in our life. Even if we're feeling lousy at this moment, we still recognize by faith that you are work, you are working 
for our best. And so it's with faith and delight that we give generously now to offer our first fruits to you. That you would take these loaves and fishes, this little sack lunch that we have, God, you would multiply it and use it for the power and glory of your kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. Diane, when you get a chance, can you close the back doors? Our kids are having way too much fun. Isn't it great to hear them? So let me tell you a little bit about our church just in case you haven't been here. Also, I, I know I do this every week. I actually do this really specifically every week because I want to get into our bones what it is that the church is about. This is what every church is about. This is what scripture shows us what every church is about. And so therefore, this is what we're about. Number one, we believe that there's, say it with me, hope beyond our brokenness. You're loved just as you are right here. And you also have a runway right now to be able to learn how to trust God and be healed. And at the exact same time, God is inviting you to a life where you're not stuck anymore. So no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you've done that you might feel ashamed about, you're loved and you're welcome and we're glad that you're here. And God wants to transform your life and he's working to do that right now. And so as a church, we're a group of courageous people that have said, we don't have it all together. And the moment that we w walk through these doors, we ruin this church. It's no longer perfect. Isn't that good news? You're not convinced. Okay. Next slide. All right. Uh, number one, what do we do? We, or number two, the first, next thing we do is we trust in our risen Savior. So Jesus is alive. He's present. He's with us. And to trust him, that's that word faith. That's that word believe. They all mean the same thing. It's a relationship word. It's a word in which we're saying, God, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to trust that you know um, what you're doing. I'm going to trust that you're smarter than I am. I'm going to trust that you have the future figured out and that you've covered the past and you're with me in the present. And so trust is the experience of not being a control freak. How many of you know what that feels like to be a control freak? Everybody raise their hands. Ready? Here we go. Let's practice. Your right shoulder goes up and your hand that's what we like to do, right? We like to control everything. And, and to trust Jesus is, is this process where we hand over our life to him and we say, you're my firm foundation. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey. I'm going to listen. Third, we believe, ready? We bring restoration, which means that you and I get the amazing opportunity to make a difference in people's lives right here, right now. So each one of those things, hope for beyond our brokenness, trust in a risen Savior, and restoration for our community, they have choices attached to them. Let's read these choices. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. And so this morning our text is going to be in Joshua 7 and about, about what happens when, when we don't make these choices, what happens when we make the exact opposite choices? And that's what today's text is about. I have a friend um, who could no longer believe in God because, and these are his words, 
how can God be good if he allows innocent children to be hurt? I can understand his question. I have a similar lament. Um, you and I have lots of significant questions that actually can impede and, and uh, be a barrier to trusting God. And those questions need to be answered. And the good news is, is there actually are good answers. And today our passage allows us to explore um, a very common complaint against God. And it goes like this. You might be familiar with this one. Why are there passages when God commands Israel to kill people? I thought God was a God of love, not a God who approves genocide. You heard that complaint before? So our passage today deals with this subject. So today we're going to tackle it and we're going to find great answers to this question. And then I'm going to take this question and I'm going to actually push it even deeper. Um, every single week I write out my sermon word for word. This week might be a week where you want to reference that because I'm going to be giving you a lot of information. Every week all of the sermons are uploaded to our website. They're on YouTube. Uh, you can order a VHS or a Betamax tape of them. And, uh, and we'll mail it to you. Uh, and you can download the sermon text online uh, by going to mycoastal.org and then hitting the sermons button. So, I want us to take a deep breath together. Ready? And I want to in invite us to start a conversation. When we tackle tough subjects like this, this is the start of a conversation. You have legitimate questions they need answers. I've dedicated my life to serving you. You have staff. And my life is dedicated to walking with you and talking with you in the journey to see your questions answered. That would be my greatest joy to do that with you. So can we pray before we do anything else? Heavenly Father, we invite your presence here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move us, transform us, illuminate this text. And we pray against everything opposed to Jesus that would be seeking to bother us, to frustrate this morning, to put us to sleep, to distract us. We bind up the enemy and silence the enemy in Jesus' name. Do you all agree? Amen. Amen. So let me catch you up if you've been gone. Uh, Israel's been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, eating strange food called manna. Manna is that Hebrew word that means what the heck is this? I'm not kidding. Mana, what the heck is this? And they're wearing the same old clothes. And they're now in the promised land and they're confronting the most advanced, heavily armored and well-equipped army in the known world. These are the land Vikings, the Amorites, the people who are currently inhabiting Canaan. The Amorites have been ruling this area for approximately 400 years and not with kindness. Thank you, Barb. Historians of this area describe the Amorites as ruthless, merciless, and cruel. Um, they are known for pillaging, not building. There are no existing Amorite structures. They were not a, ci a civilization of technology or improvement. They were a, a, a people group, a tribe that was based on taking what other people had built and planted and killing them and then taking that for themselves. So Israel is hilariously outnumbered and outmanned compared to these well-armed soldiers. So fighting men in Israel 
compared to the fighting Amorites, not even close. But miracle after miracle has all these land Viking, these Amorites, melting in fear. Why? Because a group of slaves beat the Egyptian army. Because Israel then walked across dry land as their God separated over the Red Sea. And then they show up unto what is now northern Saudi Arabia and they're walking around and they meet the two biggest bullies on the block. That'd be the Amorite mercenary warlords Sihon and Og. And these slaves beat the two champions of the Amoritic kingdom. <laughs> what? This makes no sense. And now, as this million-plus group of wandering slaves sits at the edge of the Jordan River, God then stops up the Jordan River and up this little dirt patch of a town named Adam, which means dirt. Adam means dirt. Do we have any Adams here today? No, we don't. All right, we'll make fun of your friends the next time you see them. <clears throat> Adam means dirt, and, uh, and I don't know what Eve means, by the way. Um, and so... At, at the little town of Adam, the waters of the Jordan River literally stack up. And now this million plus group of slaves walks across dry ground where once this raging torrent of a spring-filled swollen river has now stopped and ceased. Now, you might think, well, Israel has the advantage in numbers, right? I mean, there's not that many Amorites. I mean, maybe they were melting in fear because just there was so many uh, um, Israelites. Well, okay. The Incas had the advantage in numbers over the conquistadors. What happened? Uh, the tribes of the Zulu people had advantages in numbers over the British regulars. What happened? The Plains Indians outnumbered the cavalry. What happened? When you have a group of people who, even if they're small, if they have advanced weaponry, it doesn't matter how many the hordes are, the people with advanced weaponry are going to win. The Amorites have every modern tool of warfare known to mankind at this time. They have tanks. That's called a chariot. It's a moving armored vehicle with swords spinning on the side, right? So they have the M1 Abrams tank. They have missiles, right? Those are arrows and big spears launched from massive bolts. They have body armor and they have impenetrable fortresses. What do the Jews have? Yeah, they got a little wooden box that they carry around with them <laughs> called the Ark. And they were farmers in Egypt so they've taken their farming implements and they've made them into edged weapons. That's what they have. This is like a kindergartner going against the high school senior class with a wiffle ball bat. <laughs> Not gonna go well. Jericho was a fortified city which could be defended with arrows and spears. Israel has a water pistol. Jericho was filled with battle-hardened warriors. Israel was filled with slaves. The last thing you would expect is the high school bully to be taken on by a fourth grader and the fourth grader to win. This, the move for Israel to attack the Amorites is psychotic. It's like 
one person taking up a biplane and taking on the entire U.S. Air Force. How's that going to go? This is insanity unless something else is happening. And what we learned last week is that Israel, their entire battle plan is based on one reality. They're not fighting for God. They're hoping and trusting that God will fight for them. Do you see the difference? They're not fighting for God. They're hoping and trusting Putting all their eggs into this one basket. God, you are going to fight for me. Read this with me. This is Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. This terrible military strategy unless God is real. So what is Israel's strategy to defeat this entrenched army at Jericho in one, an incredibly hardened fortress that's over the, about a seven acre plot with maybe a couple thousand military regulars in it? Um, what's their plan? They're going to walk around this seven acre plot of land, this fortified city, and they're going to play worship music. It's like Eisenhower saying to the boys on D-Day, are you ready? Every single one of you is going to have an accordion. You're going to get on that Higgins boat. We're going to hit Omaha, June Beach, and you're going to get out, and you're going to play the accordion. <laughs> Trust me, it'll go well. Nuts, right? Uh, yeah. Here's the point. If God doesn't show up, Israel will be wiped out. And, and, and they're not facing a metropolitan city. So, um, so one of the complaints that people have uh, about, about this time period in history is they're saying God is commanding Israel to wipe out citizens. That's not what's happening here. Everybody else, all the women and children and just normal people, they live outside of these fortified cities. Uh, the city, the word city in Hebrew is the word ir, and it means a military outpost. So when God calls Israel to take on and to destroy these cities. He's saying, take on and destroy the place where all the soldiers live. So here we are. Um, next, next slide is a, is a map. And you can see here, there's the Jordan River Valley in the middle. And so they've crossed over the Jordan River Valley. You can see the star right there. That's Gilgal. That's where they create the Ebenezer's. And so last week we read about how they, they defeated Jericho. And then this week is going to be this movement where they're going up the hills. So Jericho is the fortified city on the hill looking over the plain. So that's military tactics say if you, want to, if you have the high ground then you can see more. Right? And then you can be in charge. So the first thing they do is they take the big fortress called Jericho. Now they're going to wander up the little goat pass. And they're going to take a much smaller fortress named Ai. A I, I, okay? Um, so, so here we have, this is what God has the Israelites doing. So just notice something, that, that first of all, God is not asking Israel to attack citizens. He's asking Israel to deal with forts filled with soldiers. Picking up what I'm putting down? Say yes. 
Now, what does God do for the citizens living in Jericho? There's a couple of them. One happens to be named Rahab. She ran the Holiday Inn. And she has a small staff to help the soldiers. So that's the only people that are non-citizens living in Jericho. And what is God's plan to do with those non-citizens? Or those non-military personnel, those citizens? Yeah, God saves them. So this is not a story about, about God asking the Israelites to commit genocide. This is the story about God opposing evil. This is a story about God um, opposing a military force that for generation after generation after generation after generation has made life absolutely miserable for everybody living in this region. This is a story about God saving the weak. This is a story about God using the weak to confound the strong when there's no way they should win that battle. That's what this story is about. And I, I know that we cringe when God brings judgment um, against someone. I know that that's a common reaction for us. Um, we want God to be merciful, especially to us. Amen? Amen? Let me be more specific. I hope it all works out for you, but I really want God to be merciful towards me. <laughs> I mean, I know you deserve what you get, but like, please God, be merciful to me, right? I sincerely hope you're okay, but let's be honest. That's how we feel, Amen? Oh, come on, You're, it's safe here. You can admit that. But here's my, my insanity. The, I want God to be merciful for me. I want God to be patient with me. But the moment someone hurts me, what do I want? Justice! Condemnation, judgment, now. Let's go. Make it happen. God, please be patient with me. Get them. <laughs> Sound familiar? My, my brother was terribly abused when he was 13 years old. I want those perpetrators taken care of. My uncle, Patrick, murdered in Waco, Texas. His, the person who killed him is still free to this day. I want, I want them found. I want justice and I want it now. And I want mercy for myself and I want that now. I went on a, on a walk with an amazing high schooler this week, absolutely incredible kid, and he was talking about his experience of being a judge. And like me, um, he and I are not too good at the job of being everybody's judge. Can you relate? Like nine of you said yes. Can you relate? Okay. Um, so we're both pretty fair overall, but we, if we're honest, we lean our judgments to favor ourselves. Not too bad. Um, but when someone hurts us over and over and over again, that's when we both get kind of cold and cruel and harsh in our judgment of that person. And I'm not pointing at you, Melissa. I'm just, you know, it's just in general, right? 
so after we're done with our conversation, we're walking and, and we sit down and talk. And I said, so, so what do you want to do with that job description of being judge? And I wish I had the courage that this kid had when I was 16 years old. This is an amazing kid. And he says, I don't want to be judge anymore. I'm sick and tired of this. And he prays. And in that moment of prayer, as he hands over the right to be judged to Jesus, because Jesus is our judge, he hands that, that's what forgiveness is. It's about the issue of judgment. I'm going to hand the right to judge into, ju into Jesus' hands, who's way more capable of being judged than I am. Recognizing what they've done wrong, telling the truth about how I've been hurt, but then handing the right to judge over to Jesus. This, the tears started to flow for him. And he was so grateful to finally be free from that weight. I wonder how many of our complaints against God are actually us deciding that we'd be much better at judging than God. So what does God do with the evil Amorite soldiers living in Jericho? What does God do? These soldiers have had 400 years to repent and they don't. Sin has consequences. Terrible sin has terrible consequences. If we're the victims of, of, of attacks, we want God to do something, and so God does something. God stops the Amorites at Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. The soldiers are completely defeated, and the poison of their sin and violence and evil crumbles as well. Well, you might say that all, that's all nice and might be true, but, you know, um, victors write the history books, and so maybe Israel just painted this picture so that uh, we would assume that Israel's weak and, and they're defeating this greater enemy. Maybe that's all of a lie. And, and that's, a, that's a legit point. Except that Israel is constantly depicting herself as weak, fearful, idolatrous, unbelieving, stiff-necked, stubborn, and disobedient. The moment after Jericho happens in chapter 6, chapter 7 opens like this. Are you ready? Read chapter 7, verse 1. Wait, you skipped a word. Chapter 7, verse 1. Oh no. That's an ominous word to start a story, especially in chapter 6 when you have victory. And But this story is going to be about Israel's abject failure. Are you ready? Let's read together. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the voted things. Let me explain. Um, bless you. Israel was asked by God, just like we are, um, to give a tithe, a portion of, our, of everything that we have to God every month. And the idea is simple, is that I would pay God first, not last. How much money do you have at the end of spending all of it? None. All your money is spent. If you wait till the end to give God what it is that you want, what you'll do is you'll end up tipping God. Like a really bad tip at a restaurant. Like, I got 75 cents. Here you go. Sorry, I'm going to leave quickly. Right? That would be bad. That's a, that's, a, that's a tip. A tithe is completely different. A tithe is that you would say, God, every breath that I have comes from you. Every, everything that I have comes from you. This job, these opportunities, these are all gifts. Yes, I'm working, but they're gifts. And so I'm going to take the first 10% of what I have and I'm going to give it to you. 
If we all tithed to the church, we'd have a $3 million budget. <laughs> Imagine what we could do. We don't even close. I mean, like, like less than, like, like that's 90% of what, of what we don't have, right? Now, you're so generous. I'm so grateful for you. But I just want to let you know, like, like tithing is giving the first 10%. And so what it, God asked Israel to do is saying, look, Jericho is going to be your tithe. Everything that you find in this city that's of value, all the silver and the gold, it's going to be devoted to God. And God told this to the Israelites. Joshua told this to the Israelites. It's really, really clear. You're not to take anything from this garrison. You're going to give it all to God. Picking up what I'm putting down? Let's read it again. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. That means somebody had the insane idea that they could fool God, that they could lie, that they could steal, that they could take things from God, that God's a blind idiot not paying attention, and they're just going to keep some stuff for themselves. Let's read who this person is. It's Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Hmm. So Achan decides that when he goes into Jericho that he's going to take what he wants. Now why in the world does God have Achan's dad and grandfather and great-grandfather all listed there? Why? Why is that? I have a theory. I have a theory. This is, this is not a throwaway verse. N there's no verses in the Bible that are throwaway verses. The last thing that Joshua says to his people before he dies is this. He says this. <clears throat> Next slide, John. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. So Joshua is really straightforward. Look, if you want to follow God, follow God. If you don't want to follow God, then don't. Make a choice, whatever you do. Whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, so that's in Egypt, that would be Achan's great-grandparents listed. Or the gods of the Amorites, which his parents and grandparents also worshipped to great disaster and ruin in whose land you are living. But, read this with me, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua tells this to his people. So there's a point that, that is being made. What's the point? Look, Achan didn't just wake up on the day of the battle and decide to disobey. He walked across dry ground on the River Jordan. He saw the walls of Jericho fell. So what happened? Here's my theory. Achan had a tape playing. For those of you who don't know what a tape is, it's like an 8-track. For those of you who don't know what an 8-track is, it's like a record. It's like a CD. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, it's like an MP3 file. So, this... This script, this track, this tape, this record, this MP3 playing in Aiken's brain over and over again. About who he is. About what he deserves. About who God is. About whether or not God could be trusted. 
And my theory is that the tape that Achan had playing, he didn't, it just didn't come out of nowhere. It came from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. That's why they're mentioned. This is why Joshua mentions all the gods that Achan's ancestors have worshipped to their destruction. And here's the point. All of us, we have inherited things from our family. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about brilliant, amazing gifts that you've gotten from your family and also profound dysfunction. Now, I don't want you to think about your spouse or your neighbor or the person sitting next to you and be like, I know, seriously, have you checked out this person? Help! I want you to think about yourself right now. Okay, I want you to think about yourself. The wonder, wonderful author of Emotional Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro, he's a pastor and author, writes this. He writes, so many of us carry scripts, old tapes, that play and play from our families of origin. You're stupid. You don't matter. Your needs aren't important. You're weak. You need to be strong all the time. You can never rest. You can't be wrong. You have to be perfect. These messages are deep in our bones. We have Jesus in our heart, but our grandparents are in our bones. And so Achan's script is running in his head, and Achan makes a choice. We always have a choice. Achan makes a choice. I'm going to take this silver. I'm going to take this gold that's supposed to be set aside from God. Now let's read what happens. What are the consequences? Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. So they're going up the mountain to the small little fort. Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, look, we don't have to all go up to Ai. Only a few people live there. So about 3,000 of the men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people, the Israel, the Israel, the Jewish people, melted in fear and became like water. Now Joshua has no idea what Achan has done. But clearly God's protection from Israel is gone. And so Joshua drops to his knees, falls face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant to complain to God as though it's all God's fault. This is, what Josh, this is Joshua's prayer. Ready? Here he goes. Joshua said, read this with me. Now, sound, sound dramatic. Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Doesn't this sound familiar? It sounds like the people who complained against Moses and said, what, there weren't enough graves in Egypt? You came, you brought us here to die, right? Keep on reading with me. If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me, God. What can I say now that the Israel has been routed by its enemies? What is Joshua saying? Look, they're never going to believe me now. You're asking me to lead these people. I'm going to tell these people to go fight this. They're not going to fight. You know what they're going to do? They're not going to kill the enemy. They're going to kill me. I'm done. I'm absolutely done. What the heck are you doing? Did you just bring us here to kill us, God? You promised to protect us and we're crushed by this tiny little force. What is going on? Now, Joshua prays. That's the right move. What he prays is absurd, but that's okay. This is, what God's, this is God's response. Read this with me. And the Lord said to Joshua, Uh-oh. 
You ever prayed like you're face down on the ground? God, what's going on? And God says, dude, stand up. Come on. <laughs> so Joshua gets up. God keeps on speaking. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. So Joshua blames God for everything that's happening. And what is God doing? He's actually saying, no, no, no. This is not my doing. This is not my fault. The responsibility is yours. There's sin going on. Rebellion. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I'll not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. You have death in your midst. I'm life. What do you want? Be done with the death so that you can have life. Picking up what God's putting down? So this story is not about God being some mean judge. Not at all. This is, this is the story of a deeper truth that you and I forget, that we want desperately to ignore, that we regularly downplay and dismiss at our own peril. And it goes like this. Sin is death. Say that with me. Sin is death. Sin kills you. Sin is not something that you can indulge on the side and no one will find out. Sin might seem like a small and attractive and, and really no big deal, like it's this little cute little kitten. Oh, it's going to be so nice to have that with me. But sin, as you feed it, grows into a lion, a wild, crazy, vicious lion that will devour you. Like, you don't invite friends over to your house with a live, wild lion in your living room. Do you? That would be crazy. Oh, don't marry with the lion. Don't worry about the lion. I, I gave it cat food this morning. It'll be fine. Oh, it's normal. He usually licks people's heads like that. Oh, no, it's okay. You know, his head, sometimes he'll place your head in his, oh, no, not again. <laughs> That's what we do. That's what we do. How, how do we describe our sin? Well, it's, it's no big deal. Look, it doesn't hurt anyone. Look, what I do in private is nobody's, anybody's business. It doesn't hurt anybody at all. It's just a little itty-witty-bitty cute little sin. Look, I didn't mean to. Look, I'll work on it. I know, I'm going to keep on doing it, but I'll work on it. That's what we say. It's all a lie. All of it is a lie. Sin is death. L let me ask you, how do you describe the sin that others commit against you. I know, that's a low blow, right? That we describe as death. That deserves punishment. That must be stopped. That must stop right now. No one can treat me bad. That's death. But our own? Oh, no. We pander it. We want to think that we can put a leash on the lion and everything will be just fine. And what do I do? I want God to be merciful towards me. And let me keep my pet lion. I want God to take care of everybody else's lions. And I'm mad that this situation even took place. And of course all of this is just me refusing to admit deeply that I'm the one with the issue. 
I don't like to admit that I'm the one with the sin problem. I want to judge my sin as harmless and judge everybody else's sin as horrible. And the reality is, is that when you and I are the judge, it kills us. So sometimes we need some helpful questions to illuminate what we don't want to see, what we don't want to admit. So Pete Scazzaro, the author of Emotional Healthy Spirituality, was talking to a pastor, a friend of his, and asking him about this pastor friend about some basic questions about his family of origin. Because sometimes, you know, we have Jesus in our heart, but grandma and grandpa are in our bones. And so you got to kind of get at some of this, some underlying things that are poisoning you. And so Pete asked them a series of questions. He says, hey, did your family regularly bless each other with gifts and kind words? And the pastor guy goes, no, just at the holidays. Does your family do empathy and deal with feelings? Nope. Does your family deal with anger, sadness, and the feelings of helplessness and fear? Well, we get mad and yell, but we don't talk about those feelings. How, how does your family deal with affection? Well, that ends when we're about 10. Um, is it, are you allowed to share how you feel in your family? Nah, we never really talk much. How'd you do conflict? Well, mom would talk and talk and talk, but nobody would listen, and then she'd start screaming, and then dad would leave, and then he would leave, and then he'd only come back when he was going to explode. Well, how about forgiveness? Ah, that was just a silent treatment until, until the person sort of let the whole thing pass. Does any of that sound familiar? When I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, did this guy grow up in my house? Like, what in the world is going on here? So here's a guy whose family loves Jesus. They all go to church. His parents are active in the life of their church. And his family of origin, they carry around the script, that A-track, that record player, that MP3. They carry around this script of how to deal with life that is totally opposed to the family that Jesus gives us. Look, maybe that's what Aiken's family was like. I don't know. But I do know that unless you come face to face with the lion that's killing you, you're never going to have a chance to put it to death. Your responsibility for your discipleship to go further than skin deep is to say this doesn't work anymore. This behavior, this thought pattern, it does not line up with the life that God wants me to have and I'm going to put this thing to death right now. So Joshua discovers that Achan stole the silver and the gold devoted to God and Joshua confronts him with such tenderness and this is Achan's response. Verse 20, Achan replied, read this with me, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon. Everything from Babylon is amazing. You would not believe their spring collection. <laughs> 200 silver coins and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. That's a half a shekel. That's what the F note is about. I wanted them so much that I took them. I really, really wanted them. They're hidden in the ground beneath my tent, which means my family helped dig the hole. What are you doing, darling? Why are you digging a hole in the, in the living room floor? You did what? Ooh, that's a nice jacket. Okay, let me help you dig. What if people find it? Well, let's keep the silver, let's dig it even deeper. They'll just stop digging when they find the coat and the gold, but then we'll know that the silver is even deeper. 
They're hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried deeper than the rest. The thing that Achan doesn't want to admit is the cost of his own sin. What did it cost? It cost the lives of 36 men. 36 wives are grieving. 36 families have been destroyed. There's hundreds more men that have been maimed in the lost battle and Achan doesn't want to take responsibility for any of it. Achan is saying, look, um, I don't need God. As long as I get my retirement money, I'm fine. Did you ever grow up in that house? The focus was just about your independence and about your security totally apart from God. And so Joshua has this very undesirable task. Joshua holds three positions all at the same time. He's the spiritual leader of Israel. He's the military leader of Israel. And he's also the chief magistrate and judge of Israel. Anybody want that job? Goodness gracious. So Joshua applies the law that's written down on the books, which is this, that if you cause the death of someone, then you get death. A life for a life. And so Achan and his entire family who agreed to this horrible sin which caused the death of 36 men, they get everything that they caused and the entire family is killed. Achan thought that no one would know. This is what we do with sin. We don't realize the decisions that we're making lead our family into destruction. We want to downplay it. And what I need you to understand is that sin is death. Now, none of us want to be like Achan. Right? We're all on the same page? You made it on a Sunday morning, so I'm assuming that we're all on the same page. None of us want to be like Achan. Now, and, but we can identify with him, right? We've, we've done the same. We've done worse. So how can we be free? Look, how can we have Jesus in our heart and have him in our bones? And I mentioned already one thing. Look, you've got to identify the thing that you want to change before you can change it, right? Uh, one of the things, I know it's painful to think about our family of origin. I know that's not easy. But how's the strategy of ignoring it going? Like it doesn't get better, better when you just sort of like glaze over it. You have to deal with it. You deal with it one thing at a time. You talk it through with a trusted counselor or friend who loves God, right? And then you do what my good friend Don, who plays drums, says. You pick the low-hanging fruit. You, you deal with the thing that's right in front of your face right now, and you work on it. You talk with it. You identify, God, what, what do you want me to do with this? And you get input from friends who love Jesus that you trust. You read scripture and you begin to work on this one thing that you're going through. One thing at a time. Not everything all at once. One thing at a time. And you can practice living in freedom. You don't have to perform. You don't have to give it ready. The idea is, is, that, is that you practice living in freedom because this is what Jesus' family says. Look, it's good that you exist. You're lovable. You're enough right now. You have nothing left to prove. Your needs are a delight. You can talk about anything. You do not have to be perfect 
And we're also not going to put up with you living with a lion. We will help you change. So we do this together. This is the function of the body of Christ. We all do this together with trusted friends who love Jesus. So here are some markers of a healthy family. This is what a healthy church looks like. This is what a healthy family look like. And it's your job to lead your family into health. Are you ready? Here's some markers. This is not an exhaustive list. There's only five things. But here you go. Read this with me. We can be vulnerable and share our feelings. No, wait, let's say it again because I need, oh, especially all the guys. Uh, there was a lot. There was a, that was an alto and soprano section, but I missed all my baritones and basses. There was one tenor, but let's, let's just read that again. We can be vulnerable and share our feelings. We can be in a process of change. We can speak hard truths with gentleness and kindness. Our finances and sexuality can be in line with our beliefs. We can confess sin and receive forgiveness. Next slide. Last two. It's okay to feel sad, broken, and helpless without someone or something swooping in to fix everything. Seriously. It's okay. Finally, we can regularly receive and give affirming words filled with God's truth about our new identity in Christ. Is that the kind of family you're, you're, you're shaping and forming and leading? Is that how you're treating each other in your family, both here in a church and at home? I'll close with this thought. It, the whole story of Achan, it points us to Jesus. Why? Because what, what did Achan desperately need? What did he need? He needed a judge who would look on him and say, I know that your sin leads to death. And that's what it is. It's death. And that's what you deserve. And then what Achan desperately needed is that he needed that judge to step in and take that judgment for him so that he could live. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for you. Our sin leads to death. And Jesus looks at you and says, I know what you've done. I know what's been done to you. I know the death that has come into your life. And if you'll let me, I'll take all of that upon my shoulders and die the death that you deserve so that you can be free. And he wants to because he loves you, because you're his and you belong to him and you have the ability to live in freedom in your heart and in your bones. Amen? Amen. Oh Lord Jesus, bless and seal these good things in our heart. I pray Jesus that you would Seal the truth about the deep, profound truth of the gospel and the hope that we have in you into our bones. And God, I pray for each person here as they trust you, as they seek your face, 
I pray, Jesus, that your spirit would be upon them. Your comfort and your peace would guard them. And pray against all the enemy's plans to discourage them now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, let's stand for the benediction. As Chris plays and the worship band plays afterwards, I, I want to invite anybody that wants prayer, come forward with prayer. We would love to pray for you. We have safe people that can pray with you and for you. Now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance that's his delight in you and give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's beloved, forgiven, chosen, worthy children said. Amen. God bless.